Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He's the author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities, published by Penguin 2018, Abrams 2019. He has also written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Unheard, the London Times, the Telegraph, and Newsweek, among others. His recent report on academic freedom is entitled Academic Freedom in Crisis, Punishment, Discrimination, and Self-Censorship. I welcome Eric Kaufman to Savage Minds. If you had told me back in the late 90s or early nights that we'd be having a culture war over the definition of women, over women being able to speak, and the way that racism is being reinvigorated by the left, by the way that ableism, even though they like to call everyone else ableist, but it's being really invigorated by the left. I don't know if you've followed the latest L word, it's awful, but I have to look over my shoulder constantly and wonder what year are we in? You know what I mean? Yes, I know. I know it's, it's insane in a way, isn't it? I mean, uh, but, but it, it, it all flows kind of out of, a, of an ideology that has been in development for, for a long time. Uh, so I think it's, it is, you know, in some ways, the logical culmination of the development of these ideas over many decades. I agree. Although, you know, I've had, like I read, you know, the Pluck, Pluck Rose Lindsay book, and I even saw the pre-book, which was an essay by Pluck Rose she had done, I believe, two years prior. And I have a few issues with the idea that, well, I don't think Foucault would be on board with this at all. I think a lot of his work was against this kind of madness. I do wonder, though, to what degree we've seen in past decades, previous eras, where an obscure, almost unreadable type of writing like that of Gender Trouble and other works, Bodies That Matter by Judith Butler, have become co-opted by this kind of cultural euphoria to identify out of reality and identify into madness. I wonder if, is this really all Butler? Or is there something deeper that Butler became part of it? Like you see Mm. all these leftist politicians, isn't it more convenient for them to print up pronoun badges than actually deal with leftist material reality stuff that they seem to eschew quite facilely in recent years? Yeah, I mean, that's a, you, you make a, a really good point. And, and there's been just, a, I mean, something came out on Twitter today. I think Wesley Yang pointed to the San Francisco school board, which is a hundred million in, in debt and they've sort of failed their students. And, and so, and, and of course that was all sort of concealed with a lot of the same window dressing around renaming schools. And yeah, I, I think that's right. There is a diversionary advantage to sort of signaling this stuff. And that's so one of the downsides exactly, as you say, is material problems get neglected uh, because they can be blamed. Well, people can divert to these symbolic questions. But but no, I guess just getting back to the, uh, the, the wider discussion, I agree with you. There is an issue in Pluck, Rose and Lindsay in the sense that uh, Foucault and postmodernism, you know, on the one hand, it's I think it did, did contribute to some degree because of its emphasis on culture uh, being under underpinned by power relations. So everything's kind of reduced to power relations. But on the other hand, they were relativists rather than absolutists in moral terms. And I guess that's the opposite of what we're seeing. So it, it's a bit ambiguous. But I think 
the roots of this thing go much deeper. So I think if you look at the 60s new left, that, that second phase, uh, already beginning by the mid 1960s. I mean, if you read what Nathan Glazer was saying about the student uprising, student movements, and how intolerant they were of anything conservative, uh, professors, recruiters, you name it. I mean, that that was already there in the DNA and it's it was anti-intellectual, emotional rather than rational. I mean, I think a lot of the building blocks uh, were in place in the late 60s. And in fact, a lot of the identity movements and the way they chose to express themselves through protests, sort of turn your brain off and yell instead of engage in uh, deliberation and incrementalism and so on. I, so I think a lot of the kind of identitarian building blocks certainly were there in the late 60s. Yes, I've read many critiques about the new left as being the historical epicenter of this, and, and I cannot disagree. I guess I pause at Foucault because his whole project was against this kind of essentialization of identity based on schools of thought that tend to mark the subject in one way that in a way, there's a strange recoiling here. Some people on Twitter say this is an example of the patients running the mental hospital. I might not be phrasing that correctly, and I'm sure that will be called out. I do wonder, I mean, I've written about the liberalization of the mental hospital in Italy in the 1960s, and there were some very good projects that came out of it. And there were some very good laws that came out of it that made it impossible that people with some mental health issues would not be interned against their will. What I do wonder, watching these past days with what happened with Kathleen Stock, who is far more reasonable than am I about this issue, <laughs> I will not kowtow to anyone's pronouns because I find this ridiculous. I, as I say, and you, you know my name, I don't know if you had a pause and wondered if I was male or female, but I get a lot of emails every day to someone addressing me as a man. And, you know, I don't go and try and get them fired. I don't have a meltdown. Right. I have a very healthy sense of humor and I really don't care. Skip to around the 90s, I was up for a job at Berkeley in the French department, and it was a cultural studies position focusing on gender. And that interview, the first one happened by phone, where the first three minutes of the interview were all the people on that party line saying, she's a woman. In other words, she's a woman. She's not a man. This isn't a man. And it went on. And I said, is this for the gender studies position? I was sort of being ironic. <laughs> but that's exactly sort of the epicenter there, because that part of the US is what has kicked a lot of this off. Meanwhile, I was alerted really early this morning as to a story that Tucker Carlson is covering about a father, and if this is true, this is damning, a father that has be essentially been, I'm not sure if he was threatened with arrest or arrested, pull up, pulled out of a PTA meeting because in order to get votes on gender neutral bathrooms and gender neutrality in this one school, he came to report that his daughter had been raped by a male student in a dress. This was the report, I'm paraphrasing. And I want to investigate this further later today, but we're seeing all sorts of shutdowns. And you know about the case in Canada, in BC, of yeah. the father. I mean, it's beyond the pale. You know, they're calling our country Tranada. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, 
this is sort of what happens when you, I mean, I think all of this stems from the valorization of victimhood. That is, if you have more victim points than somebody else, then you get to speak and they have to listen and you're kind of cannot be assailed, right? So, so if, if you're say, uh, you know, so if we take something like um, somebody recognizing your identity, I mean, it, so I'm, I'm sort of, my father was Jewish and my mother's a lapsed Catholic. And if, if I say, well, I'm a Jew and some other juices will know you're not, I mean, at what point do I sort of get to force them to, to recognize me? I mean, that's clearly illiberal, right? But, but if I can right. say, well, I've got more oppression points and therefore you have to do as I say, that changes the game entirely. So I think that, that what underlies all this is that victim oppressor totem pole where uh, people who are higher up the pole get to sort of tell people lower up down the pole what to do. And in this case, the trans are claiming uh, to be to have more victim credibility, more victim credit than than women, and therefore they're able to enforce uh, demand recognition, which is a kind of compelled speech. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's it all stems from subscribing to this cult of victimhood and worshiping of identitarian victimhood. And and until we address that ethic, I think we're going to be in trouble. This ethic, though, has come about because, as you mentioned, politics in the mid-60s from there on, it's also come about because I think there's a, a leg in there of the way pop psychology came to represent one's ability to speak. So you could read, what was it? I worked in a bookstore in the 80s at one point, Men Who Hate Women and Women Who Love Them, right? Those kinds of titles, they set up the perfect victim. And, and uh, the foibles are, are even within certain tracts of feminism where the idea of the person speaking as always being wronged means that, of course, the rest of the room must shut up and take witness. So we see, ironically, in these movements, a lot of language that stems from even the Baptist church witnessing someone's pain. <laughs> it becomes like an AA meeting as well. Right. And, you know, I read parts of your academic freedom in crisis report where you have your section, which is entitled social aversion to conservatives and gender critical scholars. You give evidence that gender critical feminists may face even greater levels of discrimination than conservatives and leavers, unquote. This past week's events at the University of Sussex, more specifically, the harassment and threats made to Kathleen Stock seem to cement this as acrimonious as the leave remain debate was, I cannot recall one episode after another on one side of the leave remain debate that attempted to set on fire the other side. Now this happened recently, I covered this, a pride march in Bordeaux, where literally these anti-turf activists tried to set a woman on fire, a lesbian on fire, and figuratively this week, where at the University of Sussex campus, protesters protesters of the group Anti-Turf Sussex set off a smoke bomb, recorded this event with photos, posted it to Instagram, replete with signs reading stuck out, as the same group made inordinate demands of her employer to put her in economic peril with cries to sack her. So they put this on their Instagram account, in addition to their mission statement that claimed that she was attempting to, quote, exclude an endangered trans people, unquote, 
And I've been you know, so angry, as I mentioned earlier, about what happened to her that I, I can't even write about it. Then I go over the quotes recently. I mean, this was insane that you have an MP, David Lammy, his comments in response to Rosie Duffield saying that only women have a cervix. And then Keir Starmer, who trips over himself to say that it wasn't right to claim that only women have cervixes. And then my former MP, Emily Thornberry, making the same claim and Duffield having to duck out of the Labour Party conference in Brighton two weeks ago, Stock having to duck out, understandably so, of the... Oh, oh well, well, Stock having to leave campus. She had to leave campus because they couldn't guarantee her security, and she was told not to appear in public at the Battle of Ideas. And... That's it, the Battle yeah. of Ideas. Yeah. She was supposed to attend the Battle of Ideas and could not attend this. She's told right. by the police to hire private security guards. Yeah. And I called the police in Sussex yesterday to get an update. They were supposed to call me back, but we'll see later on today. I'm going to recall. Uh, I'd like to know what's happening with this, because we ran a story the other day by Sarah Fillimore, who has basically laid out the the law. I mean, these are criminal acts. Yet, yeah. as you rightfully note in your report, there is a serious problem here of misogyny directed at any woman who says that women don't have penises. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, there's two real problems here, okay? One, we have a very tightly organized, highly uh, narrow-minded uh, ideological group, which are the trans activists, right? So they are very organized. They're, they've got Stonewall behind them. They've penetrated all of these organizations. There's a great BBC special um, that's just come out all, all about, I think it's a 10-part series all about Stonewall and how it's infiltrated all these organizations, got them to sign up to its ideology and carry out its wishes. So on the one hand, you have high organization, concentrated power, uh, a lot of very savvy lobbying. On the other hand, you've got, if you take within progressive dominated organizations like universities, you know, the survey that I did showed that only something like one in three uh, academics would be entirely comfortable sitting down with um, a, a female scholar who was critical of the idea of uh, trans women entering into um, a, a women's shelter. And, and so you're talking then about a very large number of people who are just a bit squeamish about this topic, or they just have this kind of, because they're on the left, they have this kind of innate receptivity to any argument uh, from harm or any kind of harm claim on behalf of an oppressed group. And therefore, you actually, it's not just the hyper-organized trans activists, but there's this sort of penumbra of somewhat confused progressive opinion that is sort of susceptible to some of these appeals on behalf of victim, you know, claimed victim groups. And so I think it's a twofold issue and we should be clear on that. I think if it was just an organized 5% of the of the total, I don't think that would be sufficient to, to move mountains the way they have. I am politically to the left. And I do think that people raising these issues need be neither of the left or the right to make sense, if you follow where I'm going here. There's a certain kind of absurdity. If you're going to make the claim that the earth is flat, you are fair to do that as long as you can prove your claim. And so far, what we've been given are a lot of lies. And I'm thinking of this. 
Lamy, when he made some of his comments about cervixes, he came immediately under fire by feminists, who know that this is nonsense, but so too many men came and critiqued him. So what he did is he tried to defend himself using the prevalence of suicidal thoughts and attempts among the transgender population. There was a famous research study done in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2018 called Transgender Adolescent Suicide Behavior to me and all. This was the group. They used data on 121,000 adolescents aged from 11 to 19 who were surveyed at schools across the U.S. All the risk factors for attempted suicide were included, such as sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, race, parental education. Michael Biggs took this study, and he's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Oxford, and he analyzed the study's results and found that statistically, the group most likely to report a suicidal attempt are gender nonconforming females, irrespective of how they identify or their sexual orientation. And then he went on to analyze the Tavistock, JIDS, and national suicide figures and found that suicide amongst young children in England and Wales, fortunately, there's no evidence that there's a high rate of suicide amongst trans-identified children. So you've got hokum that has made its way to every publication, including Newsweek and Time. They don't bother to fact check that. Yet, we've got a sector, a very well-funded lobby. You've got The Guardian that's been given $250,000 in the U.S. to run stories on the trans community by the Soros Foundation being, they're not peer-reviewing the very information they're putting out in academic publications, but nor are editors doing the fact checking on the ground. So you've got a lot of, frankly, hokum being put out there. Well, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, essentially, if you are making an argument with the grain of this ideology and this this broader critical social justice ideology, uh, if you're mar making the argument with the grain, you don't really get challenged. Uh, and that's true also in academic journals. Uh, you'll get a very light uh, pushback on uh, if you make mistakes, whereas I think and certainly in newspapers, whereas if you are, you were to argue argue against the dominant orthodoxy, then you will probably not get published, uh, and or if you do get in, you will certainly come under much much greater scrutiny. So yeah, I think that you're absolutely right that that when you do the sort of statistical modeling of it, there isn't a sort of significantly higher elevated uh, risk of suicide. Um, but yeah, that's it doesn't necessarily matter, right? I mean, the, the, these facts will get through. I mean, I do think the, you know, underlying this, you're right, I think about the, um, organized, the organizations that were, were about combating AIDS and, and uh, homophobia sort of transitioning over to uh, the trans issue uh, and needing to find a new role. I think that is certainly behind this. But I also... Uh, I also think that underlying this all is this ideology, which I'm now calling cultural socialism, which is really this, this idea of redistributing wealth, power, and self-esteem from um, identity groups designated as, as powerful or dominant to those de designated as oppressed. That, 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 and that ideology has to keep innovating and coming up with new crusades, one of which is, of course, the, the latest of which is the trans issue. So I think a lot of the energy here is coming not from trans people themselves, but from people who feel that they need to be on the avant-garde cutting edge of this cultural socialist ideology. And, and, and if trans is what you have, is the box you have to tick to be in good standing in this movement and show you are of an elevated 
advanced sensibility and that you're really alive to uh, the pain of the oppressors, uh, then I think that's what you do. So I think, I think part of this is just coming from an ideological place rather than necessarily uh, from trans themselves. And so I think it's this underlying ideology, which is cultural socialism, which sees you know, uh, words, the use of a word like master bedroom, the use of the, you know, uh, use of particular naming of buildings, statues, uh, all of these cultural symbols as somehow entrenching a power structure. That is a thesis that has never generally been tested or proven in any way. It's just a complete zombie theory, but that sort of underlies part of what these people are about. And, and the second thing, of course, is this idea of, uh, in a way, raising the self-esteem of the oppressed and if that means trashing the identity of the so-called oppressor group that's further uh, down the totem pole, then that's what that demands, right? So it all uh, it, it all works if you understand the totem pole of who's higher up the oppression um, hierarchy and who's lower down it, that you have to constantly be trying to sort of venerate and um, uh, hear out and wit bear witness to those who are sort of higher up the uh, hierarchy of sacredness. So it's all a sacred values system. And, you know, I think a lot of people like David Lammy, you know, probably hadn't thought about trans until five minutes ago, but now knows, well, I've got to be compassionate in order to have my credentials here. Yeah, but then he you turned on it and said, we need to sort of ignore that because it's not that frequent anyways. I found his rhetoric over this stunning. Equally as stunning is the fact that it seems misogyny is coming out of the woodwork and our politicians are not reacting. Uh, the work of Fair Cop and many of the people within that organization have written for Savage Minds as well. It's daunting what is happening with policing and the ideology within policing such that one must wonder to what degree anyone is getting a fair shake on this within larger sectors of society, much less within the ivory towers. I mean, your your right. study, your your paper here looks at political views of academics, the ideological age profile versus their political views. Did you find that you asked this in your paper, are young scholars less tolerant? Are they? Absolutely, they are. And, and this is one of the things that really worries me the most is that you know, I wanted to put some numbers on, we, we have obviously a lot of the stories that come out almost every day now, um, trying to get sort of a sense of, okay, let's take a sample here uh, of, of people. I, I sampled uh, academics in universities, over a thousand uh, in the US, about four to 500 in Canada, about 800 in the UK. Um, the first thing we see, of course, is that yes, there's a very pronounced left-wing skew You've got only in the US sample that I had, it was only about in the social sciences and humanities, you're looking at about 5% conservative and about 75% on the left. In Britain, it's a somewhat high, maybe 10% conservative and about 70, 70%, 75 on the left. So you have this very great skew of 14 to one uh, left to right in the US, about nine to one in, in Britain. But that's okay, that's fine. But the other thing is within the left, it's a significant far left component of sort of on the order of a quarter, 25 to 30%, uh, which is very significant because the two things that, predi uh, that predict support for firing somebody for controversial views are one, whether you are on the far left, 
But second, how old you are. So a, a far leftist over the age of 50 is a lot more tolerant than a far leftist under the age of 35. I mean, in my uh, academic sample, the academics under age 35 were about twice as likely as those over 50 to support uh, a given firing campaign. And that's controlling for things like gender and race and, and ideology. So it's right. A young far leftist is a lot more intolerant than an old far leftist. Uh, and that pattern I've also discovered in surveys of non-academics. So people outside academia show exactly the same pattern. There's nothing distinct about academics, actually. Academics are, if anything, slightly more pro-free speech when you consider how far left they are. Uh, but this problem of, of younger people being intolerant, and therefore, when I hear people say, oh, this wokeness is just a temporary thing, it's a blip, it's like McCarthyism, uh, I think that is hugely wrongheaded. Um, this is actually, we're only at the beginning and things are going to get worse because the generation coming into organizations is much more censorious. Um, a study of came out from the Foundation of Individual Rights and in Education surveyed 37,000 students this year in their current campus survey. Um, and about seven in 10 of those students agreed that if a professor says something the students find offensive, that they should report the professor to the, to the administration. 60% said if a student said something other students find offensive, they should be reported to the university administration. So we have actually a, a serious problem. And, and, and if you just look across the questions, you know, um, the willingness to allow somebody to come on campus who has a view such as, uh, you know, if someone says Black Lives Matter are a hate group, 80% of, of the students surveyed said they should not be allowed on campus, right? So we have an enormous problem of uh, censoriousness in this new generation that's coming up uh, because they've never really learned about, it's not their fault, but they've never actually learned about things like due process, uh, freedom of speech, the history of the battle for freedom of speech through the 18th century and therefore, so there is no real appreciation for that. The only thing they know, uh, are stories about uh, minorities being victimized, which of course they should learn. They should learn about, you know, Rosa Parks and, and slavery and Jim Crow and, and um, the suffragettes and all those things, but, but it's not balanced by any appreciation uh, for the threats to freedom, particularly from utopian movements, um, you know, communist movements, for example, they wouldn't know any stories. So all the stories they have are to do with oppression. Uh, and so that's all they're sensitized to. So yeah, I, I would say that we are really just at the beginning of a major threat to liberalism in, um, in Western societies, particularly at the elite level in organizations. Well, I agree. And, and one thing that strikes me about the toppling of the Civil War statues is this. I, it's really hard for me to put into words. I, I compare this to a Moebus strip where left and right have sort of crossed paths because when I watch Fox News taking more care about the poor under lockdown, the working class and the left saying, I'm locking down and they purity posture themselves in mask photos and you know Nancy Pelosi opening one of her many $35,000 refrigerators. I have a hard time squaring that with anything I believe in. And I do have a lot of productive conversations with people on the right who actually have as much concern for the poor and working class as do I. That across the idea that civil war courses taught in the United States, even at the university level, 
I've had to take them as part of my training. I was in the officer training at the time in the U.S. Army. And the one thing I learned, I had a very racist Civil War history professor at the University of Southern Mississippi, but one thing he did teach me was about the fact that the Civil War has been represented in very different ways from the North to the South. And the North likes to represent it as we liberated slaves, Abe Lincoln slaves, but what is completely off the table in most representations of the Civil War is that it was very much about class issues. And I begin to wonder to what degree the stories of the Civil War have themselves been in an echo chamber for decades without a full accounting of what happened. Is it enough to topple Robert E. Lee? Is it enough to criticize people who do Civil War reenactment? Obviously, the history of slavery, the history of the slave trade, which involves Liverpool, which involves Bristol, that needs to be told. But I wonder if what's happening within woke revisionism is a will to deflect any kind of more rich and heterodox understanding of history. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the the main thing that they're doing is narrowing minds in the sense that, so for example, if we study slavery, um, what, what we're doing, or what is the current approach, the woke approach is really to airbrush out the slavery of non-European societies of, you know, all societies largely beyond the hunter-gatherer stage. I mean, they went through, I mean, even in Marxist theory, one of the stages is, is slave society, which is sort of just a stage that societies go through. For example, slavery was practiced by widely by Native Americans. Uh, you know, this is not something like the Coast Salish in, in uh, the Northwest Coast had slavery, not because they were worse people than anybody else. I mean, everybody has practiced this in one form or another. So that is completely lost in these discussions. Number one, the, the, the practices of human sacrifice and genocide that have been practiced by various peoples, indigenous native peoples. Again, not because they're any worse, you know, a lot of societies have gone through that, but just airbrushing out the context that allows them to sort of, you know, instead of putting the sins of the West in proportion to world history, there's an attempt to sort of make them seem uniquely awful. I mean, lynching is another example of that. This is sort of, again, a common practice, even to this day in, uh, countries like Uganda, you know, you'll get hundreds of people killed uh, every, you know, every year by mobs who, who because someone yells thief and the person gets beaten up and killed and whatever. So, I mean, this is a, this is not unique to uh, the United States or to any other society. So yeah, there's just a complete taking leave of the senses, losing that that sense of proportion of putting things in context of looking at nuance. And, and yeah, I think that is, I mean, another example is what happened with the Canadian, the, the, the Canadian residential schools question where you saw people uh, burning, I think, 40 Catholic churches and toppling statues of Queen Elizabeth and crazy, crazy stuff in Canada. This is based on supposed ground penetrating radar finding, not actually finding mass gray. I mean, this is the thing they found unexplained cavities. And I actually was talking to, believe it or not, an academic in, at a university which uh, in, in, in Vancouver, where it turns out one of these academics was actually excavating uh, in the school graveyard where this ground penetrating radar supposedly found this shaft of unexplained whatever. I mean, nobody knows what it is. So there, I mean, there's no attempt by the media to verify 
any of these claims. And it turns out that this could very well have been a decayed cemetery with both white and indigenous kids in it. And in any case, we already know that a lot of the kids died in the influenza epidemics and, and neglect, no doubt, was part of that. And no one is going to endorse uh, the idea of the residential schools, but still the kind of hysteria and moral panic without any attempt to sort of verify facts, to <clears throat> question these narratives, because they're sacred and you're just supposed to nod along. Um, and, and that's, again, an example of where there's just this loss of any nuance or any context when you're dealing with these sacred oppressed groups, uh, sacred oppressed categories. And, and this is, by the way, in a situation where the native uh, peoples were saying, hey, hold on a minute, this is not, <laughs> it's not clear what these are. Uh, let's not go burning churches. Let, you know, they are not pushing this. It was pushed by white, largely middle-class activists who were, uh, who wanted a cause. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there just isn't that sense of proportion, that uh, careful look, looking at evidence, considering counter arguments. None of that really exists when it comes to these big sacred uh, totems for, for this religion. Well, I totally agree. I've been saying for years that this is a movement, very white middle-class driven. And they are not mostly transgender identified persons themselves, although I do use the term trans identified persons because I have a whole problem with the nomenclature around what has now been enshrined as transgender identity. What does that even mean? Because as you know, it's one of those how long is a piece of thread answers anything. It's non-binary, it's anything, the trans umbrella, the genderbred person, it's me. I'm wearing trousers. Oh my God, I've just broken 500 codes of gender. <laughs> it's based on the most regressive and sexist stereotypes as well. Hence, I've just finished watching the latest episode of the L Word, Generation Q, and you would practically need drugs to watch it and not laugh or maybe to enhance your laugh because it's really badly done. This last season was awful, but everything that this community of trans activists and everything they argue about is sort of undone in this series. The whole series revolves around transgender identity. Lesbians are an afterthought. Alice, one of the better actresses plays this character and uh, she becomes interested in a beau, and he's a very good actor. Those are the only people I could actually relate to. So the heterosexual <laughs> styled couple was the most interesting part of the L word. The most alleged lesbian of the characters goes off with a trans identified man, and everything else becomes about confirming that someone is really who they say they are. So there becomes a bit of a production issue when the character of a trans man played by a female who identifies as transgender, and this person in the scene eventually develops a love affair with a disabled person. Now, this is all very predatory in narratively, I would argue, because it was the only way to have these kind of Rock Hudson scenes from the 50s of him taking Jane Wyman in his arms or you know, swooping the woman up. The only person a woman could swoop up would be someone who has a very low body weight. Hence, they, they preyed upon someone who was purposely framed as disabled and was a disabled actor herself to fit this in. Anytime there were two characters, one of which was a man who identified as trans and a woman, 
the man would be sitting and the female would be on foot. So you could not see that one towered over the other. And they, these things you see repeated within Stonewall's advertisements in the UK to GLAD in the US. And these are very staged framings of a cultural lie, which everyone has jumped onto. So this is phenomenal to me because as I read your report, one word is throughout the report, which is authoritarianism or authoritarian. And I've been having a discussion on my Facebook wall, maybe 10 days ago, even last week, where someone said, well, this is all governmental authoritarianism. And I said, no, this is an authoritarianism, ironically, coming from the people and going up. This is not something the government has mandated. The scary part is that it would be easier to get rid of it were just the government. We could both vote them out. We can't vote out religious zealots of gender. We can't. And they are driving this. And as you said, I mean, this is middle class, white, elitist class, even, you know, Warren Beatty's daughter. All these people who are coming out of the woodwork from private school education, uh, glad having a special representative who is informing every single TV show to have a trans inclusive narrative or a trans character. And we've seen it. This is happening. Because yep. it's a it's whitewashing between the public that's clamoring for this, and then the media that caves into it, and then the NGOs that are funding a lot of the media representatives going out to Hollywood whispering in the ear of producers. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the way I, I'm thinking of this is that we're entering into a period of um, contestation between these two ideologies, the older cultural liberalism based on free speech and due process and and, and equal treatment, and the newer cultural socialism, uh, whereby where you are on the totem pole of sacredness determines your privileges and and who you get to accuse and who you get to criticize. Um, and, And so this cultural socialism, as that becomes more powerful in the culture with this new rising generation of millennials, it starts to up upend the rule book uh, in, in institution after institution. Um, and, and this is what I also term emergent authoritarianism. So it's if you think of society as uh, three levels, not, not government and citizens, that's just two levels. The classic way liberals have thought about society is, oh, we have to protect individuals from the government. But if we think about it as three levels, elite institutions, so government at the top, elite institutions, uh, and then individuals at the bottom. Um, The situation we're in now is where the authoritarianism is coming out of that middle layer uh, of elite institutions, and that's sort of driven by small groups of activists who are able to press on the right points within these institutions and capture them and intimidate everyone else. So you have this emergent authoritarianism from below, not government-led sort of Turkey-China-style authoritarianism from above. And that's why it's trickier for for some liberals to get a handle on the idea that this is really deeply illiberal. And it's also left-wing illiberalism, whereas typically in the past, well, very often the right has been, uh, excluding the communist societies, which of course are substantial, but you know, it's often been the right in Western societies, uh, you know, like the religious right that's been behind a lot of illiberalism. So we've now got this left-wing illiberalism, and that's now, I mean, there's now some empirical research that's come out, a study I, I saw recently of the General Social Survey in the U.S., which has been running since 1972, showing that um, in terms of allowing different types of people to speak, the the left has actually become considerably more illiberal 
beginning around 2000, actually, but increasingly on questions around identity, like race, sexuality, gender, that there is, there is less tolerance. And there's also a paper that came out in the American Sociological Review showing that, you know, whereas left-wing young people used to be more uh, relativist morally, like saying all beliefs are, are, are equal or, or similar, they're now much more morally absolutist saying, no, I, have, I am in possession of the moral truth. Uh, and so you've got this increasingly narrow-minded, intolerant, illiberal uh, generation. There's also been papers on left-wing authoritarianism as a psychological type. Uh, it used to be said that only right, uh, those on the right could be authoritarian, but actually this, this, these new papers are showing that actually left and right authoritarians share a lot of the same uh, psychological profile. So one is this desire for dominance. In the case of the left-wing authoritarian, you want to overthrow the existing, what, what, do you, what you perceive as the existing system and impose a new system on people, right? So it's people thought, well, how can they be authoritarian if they want to overthrow an existing system? Well, yes, they want to overthrow it in order to impose theirs on others, right? So, you, so you're getting this rising left-wing authoritarianism and liberalism centered in these organizations from which they are oppressing the freedom of individual citizens. And in that situation, by the way, the government, which is, as you say, you know, it's open to scrutiny by the media, we can vote them out. It's actually, you would much rather have power vested in that governmental layer than in the uh, layer of institutions, which are behind closed doors and you can't scrutinize what they're doing. And so one of the, the, the conclusions I draw from that is the way to combat one of the means that we're going to have to deploy is uh, democratically elected governments are going to need to actually start regulating uh, these institutions. And in the case of public institutions, being a lot more interventionist uh, when they when they are violating the law. Not not so when I say governments intervening into the institutions like universities, I don't mean imposing uh, beliefs on them. What I mean is where those institutions are violating the law, making sure they're not violating laws, say, against academic freedom, against free speech, due process, and so forth. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. What is a strange reversal? Someone wrote me on Twitter yesterday trying to make the argument that Kathleen Stock took issue with transgender flags outside of her office sometime in the last year, which was a complete darvo. And Darvo seems to be par for the course with this group. And I did an LOL on this. I said, prove it. And then they said, well, I've got the receipts. So the receipts, I hate that word. Um, right. <laughs> they, they were unable to prove it. Basically, they contextualized something that was not at all evident uh, within their own thought process. And what I have noticed, is especially since lockdown, when I thought I really had a moment of hope at the beginning of lockdown, when I thought, okay, there's a scientific dilemma, it's real, and maybe people will get their nose to the wall on what science really means and they'll stop this fake suicide stats and my sex is different from my gender and they go into that diatribe. And I thought that that would be the end of it. And it, it, it toned down for a few months, but then it came back. And the BLM protests 
brought a lot of that out, I have to say. Remember the reports about how African Americans or Black Americans or Black Canadians suffer COVID more? Well, this was not met out by biology. They were trying to advance a racialist essentialism rather than a historical material reading of the conditions in which, let's say, people of color, recent immigrants often lived. Da, da, da. They, didn't, they didn't do that. And then you had someone like Adolf Reed speak out about this, and then he was no platformed. He was yeah. no platformed <laughs> for saying. I mean, it, it's absolutely gobsmacking the degrees to which this authoritarian left will go to even shoot itself in the foot. How can, as a leftist, you want to have any kind of analysis of material conditions and you bar someone from speaking about the fact that the rates of COVID transmission, as we see in around the Mediterranean, the reason why the transmission rates were higher didn't have to do with the fact that people like to go or have more access to going in the sun more easily. It had to do with the fact that the multi-generational households still persist in the Mediterranean as opposed to Denmark, Holland, Sweden, etc. Anyway, studies came out even within a month to show this first study was was exactly on Italy. And you had people like Reed and then John McWhorter and all these scholars who were saying this is absolutely nuts. So you have not just the victimhood culture that is trying to win the argument at the end of the day, there is a rehashing of racism. And it's frightening to me, Eric. Yeah, I mean, well, look, you can just, in a way, I think the attitude is one of treating minorities as fragile children who need paternal protection. I, I mean, and, and, and I think a lot of the cultural socialists don't see that as, they don't understand what they're doing is, is, is a kind of racism, right? I mean, if you, if you think that, uh, oh, okay, these people can't handle um, standardized testing or rational discussion or, or criticism because they're too fragile and they need help from us. There was a study showing, I don't know if you saw that, that um, left-wing white people tended to be more likely to dumb down their speech when talking to minorities uh, compared to conservatives. And, and that's an example, I think, of this parent-child sort of uh, construction. Of course, the, the issue is that if, if you are imposing special rules and special privileges on certain groups, you're not treating them equally. I mean, there's no way you can say a group is equal when uh, you can't criticize them or, or test them with a standardized test, right? So I think there is, there's just that lack of, they just don't want to face up to the fact that this is differential treatment by race and in, in many ways condescending uh, treatment by race. So yeah, I think I, I totally agree um, that that is the upshot of what they're doing. Of course, they will justify it in the name of some kind of restitution of power or self-esteem between oppressor and oppressed, which sort of underpins the entire system. And if you criticize, I mean, this is part of the reason why any heterodox black thinker gets pilloried as a race traitor and, and, and with racist language is, is, you know, how dare you step out of your assigned role as a fragile child? I mean, that, that is really what that's saying. Um, but, but in a way it's, it's sort of, the entire system is sort of this idea that, um, you know, we are kind of benefiting, we, we're a benevolent group that are sort of benefiting them and they should be uh, grateful and, and sort of play the role that they're assigned to play. And so I think that's, I mean, you saw something quite interesting here with the 
what's called the CRED report, the Sewell report on, on racial disparities in Britain. I don't know if you followed that, but- Yes, but I did, I wrote had, about it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had, they were all essentially minority, largely black uh, authors of this report. And they, when they go through all the statistics and they don't deny that there are um, some unexplained racial disparities. There still is racism, they, you know, it was very meticulous. But because they did not, they said that, look, systemic and institutional racism, we don't find evidence of these terms as defined by their practitioners. Uh, because of that, essentially, the critics didn't care about any of the detail, any of the statistics, any of the policy solutions. All they cared about was that, hey, you violated our sacred value. You, you said no to systemic racism. That's a red line. Don't ask us to define or measure this term, but it's just a sacred term. And you've it's a bit like you know, peeing on a cross. I mean, that is essentially their reaction. It was so over the top and hysterical because it was seen to be a, a blaspheming of a sacred value. And it's no more, it's no more complicated than that. There's just no interest in, you know, this meticulous uh, counter argument and counter argument measurement falsification. All these principles of scientific method are, are completely of no interest uh, to, and, and in fact, improving the, improving the lot of these groups, uh, strengthening them so that they are able to par participate fully is also not the approach that, that is favored. Rather, the approach that is favored is one that will maximize uh, resentment against whoever is perceived to be the oppressor and to tear down whatever they have, um, rather than to try and improve the lot. Uh, the most effective way of improving the lot of disadvantaged groups, that's a, a lot less interest. Certainly, the cries of racism and cis-centrism, transphobia, et cetera, et cetera, are almost in direct proportion to the clarity of skin of the person protecting their very valued job. I find right. it quite, no, but it's, it's phenomenal. You've got a lot of these voices. I'm sure you followed the scandal within The Guardian and Suzanne Moore. Who would take a job as a journalist only to sign on to letters to oust your colleague who thinks differently? This is bizarre yeah. to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've, uh, I've certainly had colleagues who are of that stripe. I'm not, not many of them, but you know, I had, I've certainly had one, and 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 students of that stripe. And these people, they're just so consumed. They live in an echo chamber. They live in a little bubble where they convince each other that this is how the world is, and the ends justify the means. You know, it's a bit like uh, communism under Stalin. You know, we have to sort of get rid of these. Uh, bourgeois who are who are obstructing the revolution. I mean, it's kind of complete loss of any standard human uh, dignity. Uh, for, for you know, the, the, you get the the people who are the oppressors are dehumanized, and therefore you can do anything to them. Um, and and that's really the mentality that that we're up against. Is they're so fervent in their belief that they are right and they're on the right side of history uh, that principle is completely out the window. It's all sort of you know. Uh, empathy for some groups and hatred of other groups. And that's what, that's sort of what drives their behavior. Well, there's a, a short story that's a requirement in American education, because although I was born and raised in Canada until the age of 10, I am national non-binary. I hold another passport. <laughs> and uh, being raised from the age of 10 in the States, we are asked to read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. I think to this constantly in the last many years, I've been dealing with this identity politics crisis war because it's all about a town that has this annual festival ritual of stoning someone and who gets the lottery number gets stoned. It's 
Of course, today less arbitrary than that, if only it were one person. As you mentioned, you had, in fact, a colleague, Lisa Tilly, who cited the impact on staff and students of her proximity to former department heads, far right followers, plus what she <laughs> called a sickening environment, naming your political project as part of her beef. Yeah. This is all really bizarre to me. Can you talk a bit about this? Because I had a cackle reading the story. Yeah, yeah. So you will get these sort of um, extremely sort of self-righteous, narrow-minded political bigots in, in different departments. We happened to, to acquire one um, who sort of, you know, and I, she, you know, she got up in the morning and, and, and was, all, was all about trying to sort of scrutinize my Twitter feed and, and take, take uh, clip pieces of text and, and screenshot tweets and try and take them out of context and put together a story that I was some kind of white supremacist, even though I'm sort of, you know, quarter Chinese and a quarter Latino and half Jewish and whatever, but no problem, <laughs> you know. Um, so she wanted to concoct the story and, and her whole aim was to try and more or less get me fired. Uh, and which is a source, of course, going to be, you know, they will always deny that they'll always say, Oh, no, no, we're just uh, criticizing uh, legitimately and uh, uh, we, we, we weren't after the person to be fired. And then they'll in the next breath say, why is it? He, why is he still teaching our vulnerable students? You know, so it's kind of uh, this game that they're playing with Kathleen Stock as well. That's the same sort of trying to pretend that they're not trying to uh, cancel her. But yeah, so this was a colleague there. And I always, you know, I always was very, very careful in any dealings to be, you know, 100% professional. So she couldn't sort of say anything about anything sort of interpersonal. So it had to be, oh, well, his writing is somehow making me or students feel unsafe. And uh, you know, and then she claimed that um, because of my writings that she resigned, right, so that I somehow forced her out. I mean, the reality is that she took a job at another institution, which she still hasn't admitted. But yeah, and this is kind of the the, the, the M.O. of these people. Um, and, and, you know, she's one of the, you know, particularly nasty one, but you have them in many of these organizations, and I'm, I'm sad to say, tend to be drawn uh, disproportionately from this rising millennial generation uh, who are who've been steeped in these grievance narratives and really have very little appreciation for the enlightenment, the idea of reason, the idea of due process, equal treatment, free speech, et cetera. That, that's very, very weak, partly because there aren't really stories that have to root, emotionally root support for these ideas, the same way there are those stories for, you know, Nazis and, and uh uh, Jim Crow and all these other things that are to do more with cultural socialism. So, so, um, and, and which of course, I think there should be those stories, but it, it should be balanced. But yeah, I mean, you know, I've had multiple uh, attempts to investigate multiple, uh, you know, complaints from inside, outside university, from faculty, from students. Um, this is always a, a very small minority of, of people, but they can make your life very uncomfortable. I mean, I would say, however, that the UK is probably one of the better, better places to be in terms of resisting this stuff because of, uh, because of a number of things. One is the current government is the Academic Freedom Bill, which has gone through and is, just has to be finalized. Um, you, so you have strong protections from government. You've got the Forrestadter case, strong protections in law. Uh, against dismissal now, which make it virtually, you know, you have to essentially prove somebody is a Nazi, uh, you know, in order to to justify firing them on, on grounds of belief. 
Um, and of course, the media as well. I mean, the full spectrum. I mean, even in The Guardian, you will. I mean, yeah, I was surprised. There was basically no support uh, for Tilly even even there. So, I mean, I think it's the the, 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 the array of forces now is pretty strong. Um, as long as you're able to keep your nerve, um, you're OK, I, I would say, in at least in an institution like a university. But of course, as we see with Kathleen Stock, I mean, they can make your life a hell. And if you're kind of in a class and you don't know, luckily I'm not in this situation because it, my situation is not as, as intense as that of Kathleen's. But I mean, if you're in a class and you don't know if there is some, you know, woke uh, individual who is bitterly against you, uh, that's quite unnerving, right? I mean, just in terms of day in, day out coexistence, or if if you have colleagues, uh, luckily in my department, I don't have that anymore, but if you have certain colleagues who you know are uh, on the same page with these people, uh, spreading rumors, who knows what they're doing, right? So it's it sort of just makes your quality of workplace life more difficult. It, it helps to sort of nudge people out uh, or, or force them out uh, or put them under pressure. Um, and, and that's kind of the the, this, this movement is very adept at weaponizing uh, taboos, at weaponizing people's desire not to be embarrassed, not to sort of, you know, and because these taboos around racism, sexism, transphobia, because they are so powerful and radioactive, no one wants to get near them, people just scurry away. Uh, and the activists know that, so they can they can count on the fact that even though they are very small in number, they can move mountains because they can leverage, uh, they can leverage the sort of psychological terrain of these taboos to their advantage. Um, and, and that's really where I, another reason why I think only, I mean, you need media, you need everything that you're doing that, that, that the intellectual dark web is doing, all of that is vital, but I think you also need to have legislation and you need to have regulation from government in order to uh, change the, the incentive structure within these institutions to the point that administrators cannot cave in to the pressure being put on them by the activists simply because of the fact that uh, they know they're going to face fines or censure from the government because otherwise uh, activists can say, oh, well, this is damaging uh, the reputation of the university. Why? Because a few activists have written in to complain uh, or they can claim that it's, it's, it's damaging the reputation because there's been blowback on Twitter. None of those things actually do damage recruitment to the university or, or reputation or anything, but they will always claim that. And it's, it's tricky uh, to argue against when you haven't done surveys of, of the public on, on how they view this particular university. So, so yeah, all, you have this very adept uh, group. I face them, continue to face them, uh, and they just you just have to stand your ground and try and get the right uh, legislative environment in place to be able to check uh, these movements. Do you think any of this pushback to scholars like Stock, yourself, even people outside of academia like Maya, many others. I've got a piece coming out soon on the way the UCU has not had the back of other scholars, even previous no. to what they did to Kathleen. It's, it's quite vile on this very same issue, by the way. There was a tweet the other day, I believe it was a tweet, or was it the Instagram account of these group of folks that said, I pay X number of pounds a year in school fees. I shouldn't have to be in front of a transphobe. Do you think the right. fee structure has brought in from the US that client relationship that makes the students think that 
they are, you know, they do the paying, they do the saying as the expression goes? Well, I actually, I don't, I differ from some, I think this is not a, a great thing, but I'm also not convinced that that's the driver. You know, even if the government completely funded uh, the students, uh, you know, I, I don't think the dynamic would be that different. Um, so if a bunch of Mormon or Christian or uh, gender critical students uh, complained about a, a professor, they would receive absolutely no sympathy whatsoever. Uh, you know, so so it's not it's not strictly a matter of customers complaining. It's a matter of okay, which customers are we going to be sensitive to, and which ones are we going to ignore? I mean, universities are very quick to. to to reel out the free speech thing when you have someone like uh, Priyamvada Gopal at Cambridge talking about white people in derogatory ways. Uh, they'll defend her speech, which I, I agree with that, but they won't defend the speech of somebody who is uh, critical of, in a much more respectable way or respectful way, critical of say the trans movements, right? So you you have a double standard that's being applied. And so I, I still, at the, at the bottom of this, I still think, um, that this is an ideology. It's much more like COVID than uh, an orchestrated um, campaign by, by elites. Okay, I, I, I think this is much less of an instrumental thing and it's much more of a uh, religious values movement, right? So, so it's much more about a, a particular, a, a mental virus that is inhabiting different brains and being spread from person to person. That that model of viral spread is I think a better way of thinking about this now, once you get um, the weaponization of these taboos and a certain critical mass is reached and these values are elevated as sort of the uh, luxury prestige beliefs in a society, then anyone who is in a position, in an elite position is immediately going to fall into, into line behind this set of beliefs. So I think the those who try to explain this phenomenon through people people trying to get ahead, trying to make money and, and, and get advantage. I think that's putting the cart before the horse. I mean, once you have a set of uh, values established as the elite values, that's then going to drive instrumental behavior in, in a whole host of organizations and situations. But the instrumental behavior is, it follows from, it doesn't drive in my view, it sort of follows from um, the cultural values that are established. I mean, Max Weber, the sociologist had a good idea of this, you know, Weber argues that really culture is, it sort of sets, it's like the switchman on the, on the railroad tracks. It maybe changes where the tracks are going and then the train runs down those tracks. And I think that's sort of, uh, when we think about wokeness, uh, once those values are set by the switchman, then the train, the, the sort of incentives that elites pursue, the train tracks, uh, they just go down those tracks. So I don't think actually that you know we can see this through a kind of neo-marxist analysis of class and, and elite status behavior as much as i think we have to explain what is really the key which is the installation of these cultural beliefs as the prestige beliefs in the society well one thing i noticed in your report and it made me smile because i had a moment of uh, reawakening after the vote leave or remain now i voted remain long story short I voted to remain. We know the end of that vote, what happened. I had some questions around the way, if you recall, we were sold it as a consultory temperature taking vote that nothing would necessarily have to be done because of the vote. But anyways, that vote happened. And what shocked me around my cohorts who also voted to remain 
was the amount of foot stopping and refusal to accept the result. You talk about the will to discriminate against conservative or a lever by ideology. You have a chart in your academic freedom report, and it shows that leftists would be more uncomfortable than those on the center or the right of sitting at lunch with a lever or a remainder, vice versa. Now, this is something that speaks to me about what you said earlier about there being a psychological type who are driven to authoritarianism. Is it no coincidence then that people on the left don't see that they are being authoritarianist? Or to paraphrase Sarah Silverman, smelly people don't know they smell. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Or, or it's a bit like a fish swimming with the current doesn't realize that A, that they're wet, and B, that they're um, that they're moving with a current and that there's an, another way to move. I think there, that is, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, so if you look at the survey, one in three um, British academic survey would not hire a known leave supporter for a job. In the US and Canada, it's sort of 40 to 45% of academics I surveyed wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter for a job. Now this, in both of those cases, that's pure political discrimination actually, um, which is against the law in Europe actually. I mean, it's, it's it, in the US it depends, it's not against the law, it depends on the state. Some, some states it is against the law. But yeah, I think there is a view generally in society, first of all, that it's okay to be politically bigoted. Uh, and I think this is actually a real issue and will become an emerging, a major issue going forward. Um, I, I did a, you know, if you, I looked at some data again from, from FIRE uh, survey that showed that only uh, about 7% of um, Democrats supporting uh, university students in America, uh, sorry, Democrats supporting women would date a Trump supporter or, or date, a, yeah, date a Trump supporter. And I think for uh, Democrats supporting men who, who would date a Trump supporting woman, I think it was it was, it was a bit large, it might've been 20%, but it was still pretty small. So you have this, you know, that's on the dating side, fine, people can date whoever they like, but we know the dating market, you know, uh, mating across the, the political uh, divide is increasingly rare in the US. And that's increasingly now the case in Britain across the leave remain divide. That sort of political intolerance, which is, and at least in elite circles, looks to be much worse on the left and on the right, whereas in society as a whole, it's more balanced. Both sides are intolerant of the other. But I think in elite circles now, we've had a number of studies which show a tilt very much against, say, leavers or Republicans. So you have this sort of self-justification of political prejudice. Uh, we wouldn't say that about being prejudiced against a Muslim uh, or, or a Jew or somebody who held a belief which we may disagree with, uh, we're, we're told that no, you've actually got to meet the person, uh, discuss with them, actually form a view based on what they actually think rather than jumping to a snap uh, decision based on a sweeping stereotype of what you think this group is all about. And so you have this very stereotypical discriminatory uh, behavior, which is okay when it's in the realm of politics. And that's why we have uh, significant political discrimination, and that has big impacts. So in academia, for example, uh, if you if you uh, survey, as I did, master's students in Britain, uh, Canada, and the US, uh, those who are conservative and who are in the social sciences, you know, they pick up on this hostile environment. You know, something like amongst academics, seven in 10 conservative academics in the social sciences and humanities 
in North America and Britain say there's a hostile environment for their political beliefs in their department. That hostility deters potential. Uh, it, it deters students at the master's level from pursuing a, an academic track. And what that means, therefore, is that academia becomes increasingly monocultural to the point now where it's very, very difficult to find conservative academics in elite U.S. social science and humanities departments. I mean, I mentioned it was about 5%, perhaps. Many of those would be in the closet. They would keep their views to themselves. That means, of course, that they're not going to ask certain questions, uh, you know, is gender a continuum or not? Uh, are there reasons for disparities between ethnic groups and their income levels that have that are not to do with racism, that, that may have to do with uh, family structure or culture or, or other factors that you can't really ask these questions. So you can't really come up with the right scientific answer to a whole set of problems, right? And, and you get a very, very skewed debate in class. So the whole mission, the truth-seeking mission of the university is being warped systematically by this monoculture uh, politically, which has been driven by political dis discrimination. Uh, it's not the only factor, but it is a, a, an important factor. So I just think one of the things that I think will eventually has, have to happen is we're going to have to start treating political belief more like religion uh, in civil rights terms when it comes to discrimination in, in hiring, in firing, and promote all of these things. I think um, there's going to have to be a greater recognition that this is a major civil rights issue. Um, and this has to, I think, the way I like to think of this is, is that whatever we're doing to combat uh, inequality and, and to advance diversity on the gender and race front, that should be matched by equal actions on the ideology and politics front. If we really want to get at um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, we're going to have to actually prioritize um, ideology and politics at exactly, you know, at a similar level to race and gender. And actually, if you do surveys, you will get majority support for that. Uh, you know, and so I think this is kind of another of these policy areas where I think there has to be a lot more attention paid. The recent reaction to Dave Chappelle's show as well is telling of where our society is, where on the one hand, you have Kathleen Lowry, who was fired from her role as associate chair for beliefs about gender. I mean, this is really amazing. How do we resolve this? Because as you mentioned earlier, we're going to see more and more of this. I agree. We're seeing more of it. Just when I thought COVID would knock it out, it's gotten worse. So how can we, as a bunch of people who are from both the left and the right, we're seeing that this sees no political boundaries when in terms of who's pushing back. And I'm very thankful for the right-wing publications that have run articles on this because were it not for them, nobody would know about this. What do we do? How can universities, aside from laws being passed, how can universities protect this kind of orthodoxy that has been cemented and that is creating a generation of students who are being programmed as ideological robots? I think, you know, the problem is, is that universities, you're assuming universities can do something to change. Um, uh, my view is that they cannot reform themselves because we've gone past a point of no return, if you like, I, that they are now so I, slanted ideologically and 
I, what that means also is that the more monocultural they are, the more difficult it is to sort of stand up to extremist movements that speak in the name of the values that most members of the departments hold. So it's very difficult for them to challenge uh, something that's done in the name of, of helping uh, the oppressed. So, and that's why I think we need the law. And this is the sort of point that I make is I don't think you can in a collective action problem where you need to sort of change the culture, but the, the pressure points are controlled by the other side in a university. You know, in the US, you've had speech codes now. They've been criticized. You've had them since the late 1980s. They're, they're there. They're, they're, the university is not gonna change, right? So that means the change can only come from outside. And that's why government uh, legislation and regulation. So for example, if universities have in Britain with the, higher education freedom bill, they have to protect and promote uh, freedom of speech. They will be monitored by a, a regulator. Uh, the, the regulator will issue guidance. The, can, the regulator can find them. Uh, people can, can, can go around their universities to, um, to an ombudsman. So this is these are all processes that will institutionalize a new set of incentives that will change the structural terrain within universities that will simply make it much, much harder for, um, for committed groups of activists to, to determine policy. Now that will, I think that will really make a difference in terms of people's freedom and reduce the chilling effects, which are substantial, um, you know, something like between 50 and 70% of conservative academics say they self-censor in their recent research teaching and discussion. So that hopefully will start to decline with this legislation. Now, so I would definitely say, Legislation has to be the central pillar of this. Now, of course, we've got to keep fighting, you know, the cultural battle uh, in the media, and that's already being done, and I think done quite well. But that's the second arena I think we need to focus on because this is a generational thing. It's not going away. It's, in my view, going to get worse. Is is schooling? Uh, you know, so primary and secondary schooling. Kids need to know much, much more than they do now about two things. One, the, the excesses of utopian movements. They aren't really, there is no sort of movie or story akin to To Kill a Mockingbird, even though I know that's being canceled now. But, you know, stories about Jim Crow and slavery and, and the Nazis, which I think we need to have. But we don't have equal stories about the fight for press freedom, for freedom from arbitrary arrest. We don't have stories about the excesses of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the killing fields of Cambodia, Stalinism. None of that gets, you know, students do not really uh, learn stories that have emotional resonance about those sorts of excesses. They need to be hearing much, much more about that. They need to actually understand the threats uh, that are posed by these utopian egalitarian movements of which wokeness is one. Um, and so I think that, you know, the education system, which hopefully will start to seep out and permeate a bit into the wider culture of, of uh, publishing in Hollywood and all of the things that influence the social media feeds. I mean, primarily younger people and, and university students are being influenced by social media, which is ultimately an overflow from influencers uh, online influencers in Hollywood and so on. The actual degree to which they're indoctrinated by academics themselves, I think is fairly minimal. I think the studies have shown that both politics from, from their professors, I, I think actually the big issue is their peers who are influenced by social media. Um, and, and that's the sort of root, I think we really need to address 
through you know the education system but in the meantime i think the first thing is the um, academic freedom protections in legislation. The second thing, though, I would say is I think universities, that, that government has a further role in ensuring that universities are politically neutral, not academics themselves who have the freedom to, to say what they want, but the administrators. <coughs> universities should not be putting out political statements, and that includes, by the way, political movements like BLM. The university should actually be remaining neutral on these questions, should not be slanting the terrain one way or the other. In addition, um, I think there should be much stronger anti-political discrimination protections. When you, you know, when you assess a grant or a promotion application, you should be getting some text saying you cannot politically discriminate. That is against uh, the policies of this institution. So those sorts of protections. And then finally, I would say in terms of increasing political diversity within the university, there are a number of different models which we can look at. I mean, one of them is, you know, a lot of libertarians, uh, who I think I very much disagree with on this, they seem to have this belief that, oh, well, we can just burn it all down and uh, create an alternative set of, of institutions. I think that's completely utopian and fanciful. I mean, there are many, many reasons why the existing university system, uh, it, it simply has legacy and network effects, which mean because of reputation, because of donations, because of all of these prestige factors, they are going to be uh, the prestigious universities now are going to be the prestigious universities in the future. So we have to work, I think, within the system. Uh, and here, I think the what I call a policy of equivalence on equity and diversity, where anything you do to improve um, gender and racial diversity, you've got to do to improve a political and ideological, and you have to match and show that you are doing equivalent action. I mean, I think that would really help. Now, you could say, if this is not affirmative action for conservatives because you could you could dial it all down and say, hey, we're not doing any equity and diversity. Um, we're not going to do it for conservatives. We're not going to do it for students of color. We're just going to close it all down. Fine. You, you have that option under this policy. But if you want to go heavy on um, race, gender, you've got to go heavy on, on politics and ideology. I think that would just bring a sort of more rounded sense of diversity into the university. And I think that's sort of what I would favor going forward rather than these, these attempts to sort of cut radically uh, budgets or sort of target particular disciplines, which I think in many cases are illiberal. Um, I wouldn't favor that. By the way, the other thing I should say is there are some initiatives afoot to bring in universities within a university, if you like, institutes, which like the, the Hoover Institution at Stanford, there's an in initiative in Texas uh, to do the same thing that's being uh, strongly resisted by the University of Texas faculty. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes, but I think it's important to be able to have these centers where you have free inquiry and there aren't really the same uh, political st uh, strictures on debate. And I wonder how historians will look back at, at this time. I mean, I think it's going to be something similar to the Cultural Revolution, not, not as, uh, you know, not yet to the point perhaps of people being physically uh, assaulted and killed, but, you know, I mean, it's a similar sort of uh, cultural phenomenon, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think at some point, once the society becomes sane again, then I think this will come to be seen as a, as a particularly crazy moment.